Welcome to the Prez Paul podcast. I'm very excited that you've joined us today. This is a place for us to engage and hear honest and curious dialogue about Nazareth College and the people who are at the heart of who we are. Our focus this year is on Nazareth Changemakers. Nazareth was founded by changemakers and has been educating changemakers for nearly 100 years. Our changemaking mission is to develop and engage students in working for social change. Today, we are joined by Nazareth Public Health and Nursing Professor Michael Chen, Clinical Laboratory Sciences Professor Lauren Brooks, and Tatiana Trojner-Hill, a NAS 2021 alumna in public health and now a research assistant with Michael and Lauren. And I am so excited to be with all of you today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. So let's dive in. What I know of you is that you are all very clearly change makers in every sense of the word. It's really been exciting. You've been doing uh, very important research on potential disparities in COVID testing access and positivity based on data from well over 2 million patients across the US, which is an awesome uh, data set, but an awesome and important project. Michael, I'd love it if you would tell us a little bit more about your research. Yeah, and thank you for having us on this podcast, President Paul. Um, speaking for all three of us, we're excited to be here and grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to share a little bit about our work. Um, so to, to give you some context, this research kind of was born out of uh, perhaps a sense of desperation for wanting to help with the pandemic throughout, you know, throughout that started in 2020. And so um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in partnership with Academy Health uh, and Athena Health, which is a electronic medical records company, um, they had put out an announcement, uh, an invitation for proposals to be submitted um, and so uh, the three of us got together and put together some ideas. And then uh, a couple months later, we somehow ended up with data from uh, close to 2.6 million patients from across the United States um, about their experiences of uh, COVID testing and positivity. And to really you know, quickly synopsize our proposal, uh, what we have sought to do is to try to better understand and characterize um, the racial ethnic disparities uh, when it comes to uh, accessing COVID testing services and also uh, disparities in positive test results. Um, and then the other question that we had wanted to uh, explore was to really try to understand uh, the impact of state level policies on COVID positivity. So for example, if you think back to um, things like stay-at-home orders and mask mandates and um, social distancing orders. We wanted to know, um, you know, what, what, what's the real-world impact of these policies on uh, individuals' health? Well, and the inequities in terms of the real-world impact. And that's what's so moving to me about the work that you're doing. It's such an important piece of this pandemic experience, the gaps, the disparities, as you're talking about, but also the inequities that are contributing to them and also caused by them. So I'm, I'm really moved by the work. It's so important. Lauren, it's really interesting. You know, I love this collaboration. Uh, you are um, coming from the clinical sciences, Michael, a, a public health expert. So what does the data suggest about potential ways to improve access to testing services for COVID-19? And from these different perspectives that you're pulling together, where are you going with this work? 
so far what we're doing is we're looking at data uh, specifically from May through December of 2020, so more of the beginning of the pandemic when we were first implementing testing and trying to get testing out into the community to be able to see who is testing positive, where we're seeing this positivity. And as we remember, it started kind of in a few geographical locations, right? And so what's really interesting is that we're finding that a lot of the data is showing that we do have potential access barriers based on uh, what racial ethnicity you identify as according to our, our patient data. Um, but as time went on through the latter half of 2020 and COVID testing platforms were rolled out more effectively to more states, to more hospitals, um, we tend to see a little bit more of a potential kind of leveling off where you don't have necessarily as many barriers and potentially that's due to the fact that we have more tests available, more tests were implemented, and we had those um, testing clinics pop up within communities to be able to allow for that access. Just to add on to what Lauren just shared, I think what our data suggests is that uh, at the height of the pandemic, and when we were looking back, uh, and so part of what we what we did is we broke the data down by month. Right. So starting out in March through December of 2020, um, one of our key findings is that when we, when we zoomed in on the month of May, uh, what we saw was that Hispanic and Latino individuals were five times more likely to test positive compared to uh, white individuals. And that finding persists across the country, even accounting for attributes like uh, age, gender, geographic location, comorbidities, and even health insurance coverage. Um, and if we also run a similar comparison, so uh, I, meant, I just mentioned that Hispanic Latino individuals are 5.4 times more likely to test positive. Um, among Black and Africa, African-American individuals, uh, that it's estimated about 2.4 times more likely compared to whites. And so I think this is um, perhaps not surprising to those of us who work in population health and, and clinical laboratory sciences that you know a similar pattern of disparities that we've known in the literature continue to play out when it comes to uh, COVID testing. And while you saw some change over the time of your study, uh, a decrease in some disparities, I'm assuming that that disparity that you just talked about was stable throughout. Yeah, I think as, as Lauren mentioned a couple of minutes, minutes ago, um, the, the, the disparity between Black and African-Americans uh, as compared to whites does actually attenuate a little bit over time. But I think there's a pretty stark contrast between Hispanic and Latino individuals versus white uh, individuals. Yeah, it's very powerful and, and a really important part of this story to tell. I wonder if you continued with data uh, after the December 20 period, so into 2021, can you conjecture as to what you think you would see? Um, it's hard to, it's hard for us to extrapolate um, that going forward in part because our data comes from a particular uh, electronic medical record provider. So it isn't designed to be nationally representative. Um, but what we do know about the literature is that, you know, there's other contributing factors such as uh, primarily the arrival of the vaccine and its, in its rollout. So that right. certainly has impact on testing and also positivity. 
Um, and I think, you know, just over, as time went on, you know, um, more publications and more policymakers and practitioners were sort of drawing attention to uh, the, the barriers and, and disparities in access to, to care and uh, associated with COVID. And so, you know, a lot of effort has been um, has been made to try to close the gap on some of those uh, mm-hmm. differences, those inequities. Mm-hmm. Additionally, or like to, la- to add on to that, one thing that is potentially could influence the data if we were to look further than the December 2020 is that you have the implementation of rapid antigen testing, as well as you have physicians right. clinics and urgent cares to having their own access to rapid PCR testing. The data that we're assessing is only for PCR testing. Okay. So with having, as the pandemic continued and learning more about the virus and uh, additional ways to test for that viral RNA or the antigen to be able to allow people to travel or go back to work or back to school once we eventually got into um, no more lockdowns. Uh, it also will influence the data that we have in looking at those disparities because it's also going to determine, did you have access to one of those clinics down the street from you that offered rapid antigen testing? Or did you have to travel to your doctor to be able to get the PCR testing? So I think that also would have an impact on being able to tease out trends from the data that we would be getting because of the fact that our ability to test has shifted throughout this pandemic. That's a great point. I think that's an excellent point. Tatiana, I'm so glad that you're joining the conversation today. It's fun to uh, get to know you and to hear about the role that you have played in this very important research project. I know that you are a May 2021 grad from our public health program. Um, How wonderful for you to be able to be involved in this project and to be in that program at this time. I, I, I can't imagine a more amazing naturalistic experiment for you. So talk with us a little bit about what the experience has been for you on this research project and how this program has prepared you to enter this field. Yeah, um, so first off, just you know, to reiterate everything, um, just thank you for having us. Um, let's see. I. I can't say enough good things about, you know, the public health program at NAS. Um, and I think societally, uh, pre-pandemic, I don't think much was known about public health other than like John Snow, epidemiology, vaccines. And I think now because the discipline is so relevant, you see that it's not just contained within this box of medicine. You see public health being applied in social situations, in economic situations, in you know other disciplines. And it's such a multidisciplinary area. Um, and just in my own education, I was the first, I think person at NAS to double major in international studies and public health. Oh, that's and a perfect was, combination. Yeah, um, when I told people that they were like, I never thought those two would go together. But now that I think about it, like they're very similar. Oh, gosh. I was like, yeah, I had a focus on like global health and I had another focus on like refugee health. And I just think the program itself is really put together nicely because it enables students to really tailor their education to their own interests. Um, that's and- great. Yeah, so it's been a very interesting experience to be a recent graduate during a pandemic. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's very, very powerful. I can hear a master's thesis or a doctoral dissertation brewing where you add a global dimension. You know, if there are data that are parallel to the data you've been studying, but from different parts of the world, it would be really fascinating to look at some of those trends and to compare them. So I'm hearing that, but how amazing during this time, as you're finishing your degree in public health at Nazareth College, how amazing to be able to get involved in this research project. Um, yeah, a- um, I really pestered Dr. Chen. He like brought it up um, one day during Capstone and I was like, that seems really cool. And then I just kept on reminding him to, to give me the information until finally he was like, here's the documents. Um, And I was like, thank you. I really appreciate it. (laughs) And so from there, we really collaborated together. Um, Dr. Chen is a very numbers-based person. So he was very excited about statistical data. And Dr. Brooks is knowledgeable in all that is testing and science. Um, So there left me, um, a newly graduated person. Um, So I really took hold of our literature review. Um, So I really spent a lot of time looking through a lot of articles, a lot of databases, things like that, looking to see what was already out there. Um, And then, you know, as research is what we could, you know, add to that. Um, So when we finally did decide um, what we were gonna uh, base our research on, um, one of Dr. Chen's favorite sayings is that we were trying to make Italian food without pasta. Um, so we needed a different substitute. Uh, so we found that there wasn't much information um, uh, as far as data that has political affiliation um, because the pandemic, uh, as we've seen, does have a lot of impact as far as information and things like that politically and a lot of people's knowledge of vaccines immunization things like that come from a lot of political politicized sources Um, so we wanted to see if this had any impact on you know testing positivity things like that Um, so i dug deeper into you know looking at potential data sources about political affiliations looking at state legislators uh looking at you know gubernatorial um political affiliations things like that um and collected data um and just identifying you know the gaps in knowledge and looking to see how when compared to the data that we had as far as demographics on uh, testing things like that if there was any you know significance in uh, the two combined. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I was able to, you know, develop uh, a political research question and really, you know, brainstorm um, and look at a different side of our research versus what we had thought of. Um, in the beginning, we thought we were going to be looking at more um, like age group base. Um, but as we progressed, we we discovered that our data, you know, had limitations in that. And, you know, this was a better way to utilize the data that we had already had. That's great. I think it's a brilliant example of how a research collaboration brings together people with different expertises and different perspectives. And what a great contribution you made to this research to be able to take a fresh look, to bring fresh perspectives, to go dive into the literature and also to be connected to our world, right? And which is really why the field of public health exists is to be real and to make those real contributions and um, to to recognize that from a very early time, politicization 
was a really important part of how this pandemic started and and continued. And so to recognize that in the research, well done, Tatiana. That's a really powerful question and I'm sure makes a really important contribution. How exciting. I think I'd also like to bring up the fact that because of this research that we did with Tatiana and her project that she inspired, looking at the political view influencing our interpretation of the data set that we had, we also, Michael and I, implemented that in our course. So we also are branching out ourselves in that we're teaching our students to look at how do politics and economic factors, Excellent. as well as historical perspectives, the you know high socioeconomic status versus low socioeconomic status countries that are throughout the world, tackle these problems like malaria, HIV, and, and breast cancer that we were exploring. So we're asking our students to do research in these fields that they might not have ever taken a class in before or never thought were directly related to health problems. So we're very thankful to Tatiana to kind of opening our eyes as that is another avenue to explore. And, you know, so our students, our current students are, are benefiting from that right now in that we're trying to show them this application of, again, these fields, this multidisciplinary approach outside of even just the ones that we were trained in. That's outstanding. That is outstanding. I feel the dynamism continuing. I think that's really exciting. And I appreciate the leadership all of you are bringing to that. Um, what a strong example. And the dynamism is going to, to uh, Virginia Tech in February to try to disseminate this practice to a wider community. So Woo! yeah, the Conference on Higher Education Pedagogy. Um, so Lauren and I are co-facilitating uh, Lauren is facilitating, I am supporting uh, a, a practice session, a practice session on, on sort of this interactive co-teaching model about right. basic science and, and social science. Um, and we're also looking forward to the Cinnabon in Virginia. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, you know, I also really love the camaraderie among all of you. I think that's also a very special element of, of the way that we teach here, you know, at, at Nazareth College, the way that we are a learning community. And I, I feel that among you, and that's very inspiring. It's fun to do things with people, you know, and right? I think, I think even in a class setting, uh, you know, even though Lauren and I are sort of facilitating class where, you know, Lauren and I are working with Tatiana, I think we are sort of learning just as much from students as we are from each other. And, um, and I think that probably has been one of the high points for me, um, you know, just say, holy cow, I've never heard of that before. Yeah. Like, tell me more. Um, and, and so that, that, that's been good for my brain and also probably good for my mental health as well, especially during this time. To me, that is an incredible learning community. That captures it. Lauren, I know you and Michael are co-teaching an integrative course on translational science. Can you talk with us a little bit about what that is and tell us a little bit about the course and why it's so important right now? Yeah, so that's a, a new course that both Michael and I have been teaching this fall semester. Um, and so translational science is uh, considered a, a multidisciplinary approach to exploring a scientific topic. Um, I guess when we were 
when Michael and I were putting the uh, proposal together and thinking about this course that we wanted to teach, we described it as um, moving from the basic science or the bench science uh, of a particular topic to then applying that to patients and in the clinic as potential therapies or vaccines or better understanding of a disease process. And then taking that further beyond to how does that apply to public health policy and to improve the well-being of communities that are affected by this disease. So that's, that's what the overall scope of translational science is. Um, specifically for the course that we're teaching, we decided to focus on um, three major diseases that affect uh, communities across the world. So malaria, breast cancer, and HIV. And so we've had our students explore these topics from multiple different disciplines. So we've been able to talk to them about the, I've been able to talk to them about the basic science of the biology of malaria, of how breast cancer develops and spreads, how HIV uh, replicates and drug therapies that we use to treat it. Whereas Michael's been able to talk about how our public health policies have influenced treatment and the um, exploration of ways that we can understand the disease burden and how to, to reach communities that need to have improved therapies against these diseases. Um, and what's really, I think, great about this course is that the two of us working together coming from similar but distinct backgrounds, we get to show our students the ways that we were trained to explore these topics and how we approach answering the questions and how it's different and that they can see how we can build off of each other. And I've learned a ton from Michael during this course where I'm like, oh, now some of the things in papers that I read about this make so much more sense, like confidence intervals and odds ratios. And now I understand why this now has a broader application. And I, I feel like sometimes Michael said he learned a lot from me too. So it's a great thing for the students to see that their professors continue learning and can build off of each other. Um, and that they can, it's okay if they don't fully understand everything and they can reach out to others outside of their disciplines to fully understand a topic. And so that's one of our big things that we hope our students are gonna get is that when they eventually go off of further education or into their careers, they don't feel afraid to go find others outside of their discipline and to create a multidisciplinary team to tackle whatever it is that they're exploring. I love that. That is very, very powerful. So the interdisciplinary element of it, I love what you're saying about, you know, we are a learning community. Every one of us in this community are, we, we are all learners. And for students to be engaged with you as a learner is incredibly powerful, particularly during this time. You know, again, this is an incredibly um, powerful naturalistic experiment that we're all part of. And so to have that as a backdrop for some of that learning, how powerful is that? The context of translational science comes from the fact that depending on what disease you're looking at, the gap, the time gap between initial discovery and and sort of implementation in a clinical setting is and it's somewhere between 10 to 20 years, right? So the, the medical practices we have now in 2021 are really rooted in 
uh, scientific identifications that happened at least 10 years ago, right? right. So part of the mission, and I think the NIH and PCORI and federal agencies that kind of drive the research agenda is to shorten, is to figure out how we can abbreviate this gap from 10 to 20 years down to less than 10 years, right? right. And so and so I think that's that's sort of the, the contextual underpinning behind this INT course that Lauren and I are teaching. You know, we want to, you know, some of our students come from a more clinical background and some of our other students come from more of a population health science background, right? So in some ways, like many Lauren and many Michaels. And what we're, <laughs> what we're trying to get them to do is to, to, to have a sense of understanding about what the, other, what the other aspects of the transitional continuum is about, right? So Lauren mentioned, you know, learning about uh, social science and, and population health science principles. And in many ways, I learned about like cell diagrams and, and receptors and binders and things like that. I, that I didn't really have a good understanding of. And, and our hope is that, you know, our course show that to, to the students a little bit. We also wanted to show, I think another goal that Lauren and I had explicitly spelled out when we were proposing the INT courses, we wanted to, we wanted to demonstrate to students what happens if we don't agree with each other, right? Because yeah. in this day and age, um, even though Lauren and I trained in sort of similar scientific principles, uh, we don't see the world in sort of a one-to-one -one correspondence. In fact, a lot of times the thing she says, I'm sort of like, what? You know, I, I don't think I agree with that. And likewise, she probably has disagreements with the, with the way I, I, I approach perspectives. And so part of what we try to do in class is to model that, that discourse. You know, how do we talk about a... a potentially controversial topic that doesn't have a clear consensus, offer our perspectives, actively listen, and actually take in what, you know, different perspectives have to offer. And then at the end of the day to say, you know, hey, I, I'm glad I heard that other side. And even though I may not agree, I think my view on this is more nuanced and, and, and more informed than it was before. And so I think that, that you know, we're, we hope that that practice, you know, it extends well beyond science. It's, it's really about human to human communication. And, and I think, I think we all need more of that, you know, especially in this day and age. So that, that's really sort of our that's wonderful. Uh, hidden item on the menu. I, I don't know what the right word to say is, you know, it's the off menu item that we're hoping students will take away uh, from, from the course. And vitally, vitally important. It's the beauty, right? It's the beauty of, of interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary work uh, and to have that kind of critical dialogue, uh, that's beautiful. And I hope what one of the things we learn from this time of pandemic is that we need multiple perspectives. We need multiple voices. We need that kind of um, inclusive conversation. I, I think that's very, very powerful. Um, Michael, I turn to you to talk a little bit about this very exciting field of public health. I have to say, I think um, many of us have, I know I am awed by this field now. I've had knowledge of public health, but I have not had as deep appreciation for the field of public health as I think many of us do now, having been through this time recently. So talk with us a little bit about why it is such a vital program for us at NAS now. And I'm really excited about the new master's degree in public health. So tell us a little bit about that. I think as a result of living through the pandemic, um, we've all become in, in many ways sort of 
more more knowledgeable or perhaps more aware of the importance of health, whether that's on an individual level or on a family level or, or perhaps at a community level. And I think there's sort of this increased sense of urgency or desire to want to be a to want to be to want to help right in a in a tangible way. We're looking ahead in September for the for the public health master's program, the MPH. It's really a program that's um, thinking about the the schedule and the delivery format. It's designed for uh, both people who uh, for students who have been previously exposed to public health and social sciences as well as to those who are looking to make a transition from something else into public health. Oh, right? So thinking about, yeah, so thinking about, you know, the course schedule and the delivery format with it being hybrid, um, and then also the, the range of course options that we have available, and then also the um, opportunities to gain hands-on experience through both local, uh, regional, and as well as uh, potentially international uh, internship ex- experiences. Um, why is it important to do that right now? I think, I think if anything, um, I think one of the key lessons that we've learned from the ongoing pandemic is perhaps um, that it, across many, in many arenas, we maybe we are perhaps suboptimally prepared uh, for the demands and stresses of a pandemic, right? Both from a health standpoint, also from a human services standpoint. And so I think by offering an MPH program at this time, um, you know, we're, we're really seeking to prepare students to be able to go out there into the, uh, into the real world, the professional world, and, 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 and try to help, you know, in terms of addressing health inequities, improving access to care, um, or even uh, promoting health literacy, helping people stay healthy, and then also, um, you know, uh, doing things like policy advocacy and, and, and designing and implementing interventions to, to prevent diseases and illnesses. That's excellent. You know, I, I think there is so, so much that will come from this period of time. I think in many ways, as we're still living it, we don't have any scope of how much we are learning during this time. And I can imagine for the field of public health, uh, it will be very dynamic and exciting for a long period to come. So what a great time for us. Who would have known? Um, What a great time for us to be rolling out this program and to have all of you involved. I am really grateful. It's a fabulous example of what a Nazareth College education really is about, uh, to be real, to be engaged with our world, to be doing this work so that we can be leaders and, and, you know, positive forces for good in our society. And I hear that in, in each one of you, Tatiana, it's not a surprise to me that you just got this job and that they found very intriguing and very impressive, the work that you've had both in the coursework that you've been doing, but also in the really powerful experiential learning that you've been doing in this program. So I'm excited for you. Let us know how it goes. And I am very grateful to each and every one of you for joining today. It's been a powerful conversation and I'm looking forward to hearing what comes next. So thank you very, very much. And I thank all of you for listening. It's been a pleasure and I will look forward to the next conversation.